Hello friends, and welcome back to another episode of The End of Sport. This week we have our second installment in our gymnastics week, where we're gonna have four episodes coming to you. So we had one yesterday, one today, one tomorrow, and one on Thursday all related to the harms associated with gymnastics, with gymnastics culture, um, and with the sport more generally. So as always, if you are enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, um, and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or podcasts um, or Google Play. You can always reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the end of, or at end of sport. And finally, um, you can now check out our website at www.theendofsport.com. So if that's something you're interested in doing, please check it out um, or send us an email at um, theendofsportpod at gmail.com. So as always, enjoy the show. sort of reiterate some of what you said that I, I found in my research and sense of like, so one of my future research projects is that I've written about is about um, like these Eastern Bloc athletes that defected to the West during the Cold War. So before 1989, and there's a huge slew of them that come over to the US after the revolution in 1956. And in one article, I trace like the, the experiences of, of a famous track coach and his athlete and what's really interesting there too is that while initially like Sports Illustrated and other sports sort of magazines and commentators are portraying them really positively and 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 presenting them as like these symbols of freedom and that sort of by the early 1960s um these people have been there for about six years by now the sort of media attention the media um the media sort of turns against, not against, but like they start portraying them in a much more negative light. And in particular, there's this one coach who's known as being sort of gruff and, and, and he is, his English is not great. He has a harsh accent, probably much like some of these Soviet gymnastics coaches and these Sports Illustrated articles and, and, and Life magazine are saying, you know, this coach, this Hungarian coach thinks that all he has to do is like press a couple buttons and like put some numbers that it was calculator and tell his athlete to obey, and then the athlete will get results and success. And they compare the coach and it, this Hungarian coach and his athletes to these like gutsy, ballsy sort of um, runners and coaches who just live by the seat of their pants. And you know they they train and they run based on their instincts. And so they sort of compare this sort of scientific computer sort of robot like Eastern Bloc coaching to the more sort of gutsy and natural and American slash Western way of like, this is how we do sport. This is the natural way. Um, and so, in, you know, in my article, I wasn't quite sure, like this is the first time I had sort of looked into the topic. So I wasn't quite sure sort of how to, to categorize it, but I do think whether it's racism or not, there is certainly less, a significant amount of like anti-communist, anti-Eastern European. And I think probably even more anti-Russian in your case, um, sort yeah. of sentiment where there are these like cultural clashes tied to like political clashes as well. Yeah, I think um, cultural clash is a great way of describing it because like I think a lot of this, the stuff we, the reporting we're seeing in the media and stuff um, back in the, in the 90s 
people are just unhappy that the coaches aren't like real smiley and you know kind of appealing to that um public side of things like they're just there to get a job done and yeah it's it's, it's quite foreign like having this this kind of systematic machine kind of way of coaching and westerners just don't really know what to do with it absolutely so we've been like building this history like layers by layer by layer uh which is great um but i think that um derek and nathan and probably listeners are really um intrigued about sort of what you have to say about the 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 um, and you actually have a significant chunk of one of your chapters to discuss not only the Karoes, but also like the abusive conditions of gymnastics at large. And, you, and you've pointed to different aspects of it already. Um, now, this is obviously a huge issue right now due to the ongoing um, issues stemming from Larry Nasser, but also I think in, in the last day or two, gymnasts within British gymnastics have come out and spoken very voc- vocally about the abuse they have suffered. I don't think that, I don't know how much they've talked about sexual abuse, but certainly like verbal, physical, and emotional abuse. Um, and Scott Reed, who we had on a couple episodes ago, um, talked about the sort of Karoi foundation of abuse. Um, and so I wanted to know what does your research illustrate about the sort of broader abusive conditions of sport? Um, and sort of what is this, where do the Karoi's fit into this culture? Yeah. So, um, so the Karoli's were the coaches of Nadia Komanech, who in 1976 scored the first perfect 10 at the Olympics uh, for Romania. And they were doing like a, like a cultural diplomacy tour that um, these were quite popular after the Olympic Games. And so in, I think it's 1981, they're doing one of these in America and they put all the gymnasts on the plane to go back to Romania. And uh, they just, the coaches, uh, Marta and Bella and the um, choreographer, Geza Pozar, they just quietly slip out of the airport and once the plane has actually taken off, it's then at that point that they go to seek asylum, which they are granted. And so they become uh, American citizens and quite quickly become very prominent coaches. They, um, they're helped out by various people in, in the gymnastics community to get set up because everyone in the gymnastics community knows who they are. And they they established their own gym club as the, the coaches of Nadia Komanech, which brings in heaps of interest. And, in, you know, every, kid, every parent wants their kid to be trained by the best. And they very quickly get um, a gymnast called Mary Lou Retton, who had trained most of her career uh, elsewhere. And for about a year before the 1984 Olympics, they worked with Mary Lou. And then, of course, she won the all-around at the 1984 Games. And that, so this this was um, the – it really solidified the Caroli's role in uh, – or their reputation as, like, the best coaches. And it kind of – spiraled from there or yeah like everyone just wanted to to get the Carollis involved and I spoke to one uh, international official who commented on this and he said you know the Carollis were not they're not they're not doing anything 
different. Like they didn't make most of these gymnasts of theirs who are winning. Hmm. Other coaches did. And the Corollis are just working with them for the last six months or to a year and doing these like psychological kind of touch-ups that really get gymnasts just that little bit better. And I think that's a really interesting take on it. Yeah. And I think especially knowing what has come out now about the, you know, psychological abuse and stuff, like it's, it seems like the Corollis potentially just pushed a little bit further than others would. Um, I have another person that told me um, uh, uh, talking about the Corollis and their impact on American gymnastics or just, or I guess, Western gymnastics, actually. They said, you know, we as Western coaches, we, we all knew what you had to do to win, but we didn't really want to do it. And they came here and they did it. And everyone was everyone was okay with that, which is interesting. Again, like I was told these things before um, any of this abuse stuff came out, maybe around like 2014 or so. Um, but still interesting that people recognize the Corollis are pushing a little bit further and um, where we all wouldn't do it ourselves. We don't really think it's okay, but so long as I'm not involved, it's, is probably okay you know mm-hmm. um so that's yeah uh, interesting dynamic um and i think certainly with the corollis they influenced a lot of other coaches to emulate them particularly being in this like national camp kind of structure where the corollis are the the head coaches, um, you know, other coaches are kind of, they're influenced to behave in a similar manner. And internationally, people are seeing this as well and thinking, oh, this is ha- what you need to do to win. So th- their influence is, is really huge. But it's also very clear that, you know, the Corollis, uh it's not just them they didn't really start this and it's it's everywhere so in my research i found multiple allegations of sexual abuse in the 70s and 80s uh in the united states also in the ussr like it it, it's happening kind of in in a lot of places and if you if we don't just limit it to sexual abuse but also consider these emotional and psychological abuse in the in terms of like bullying and intimidation yelling at people or making them do things they don't feel safe doing you know um making people kind of question their own understanding of their bodies and how things feel um that's it's it's happening everywhere so you mentioned that you know the and the gymnasts in Great Britain are coming out with these stories right now. And um, this is in direct response to Athlete A. It's been quite, like, mm. uh, inspirational for people, for uh, mm-hmm. people in the gymnastics community. But before before this, um, so in 2012, there was an investigation into, like, bullying and 
broadly like emotionally abusive behaviors in Swedish gymnastics. Uh, mm. There was one in, I think, 2013 in the Netherlands. There was one in um, uh, in Australia in 1995. There was also Joan Ryan's famous book in 1995, which is called Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, which kind of uncovered the American situation. And, and it did focus on the Carolis, but it, it looked more broadly. Um, so... I mean, there's more countries that I've just forgotten right now, but like these stories are coming from every corner of the world. And I just, it's almost frustrating that it's just um, American and now Great British newspapers that are picking it up because like it's, for a journalist, it's a really easy story actually. Like all you have to do is ask, no matter which country you're in, it's happening. It's just so... Some of these behaviors are just so normalized that um, people people are not coming forward because they don't even realize there's anything wrong with how coaching happens in gymnastics. So um, a big part of what's happening in Great Britain right now, what's happening in America is like the publicity of how the, all of these practices are wrong is making people realize that their own experience is maybe not quite what they thought. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I certainly didn't know about the other, the other cases that you mentioned. I mean, and you know, I've gymnastics not being my sport, you know, I just don't know much beyond like, unless I really look for it, I don't know much beyond the major cases. Um, And, you know, I'm really glad that you highlighted the whole like normalization of the the various sort of forms of abuse and how that's like laced into the culture and so people don't think to question themselves or or to listen to people to athletes who may be questioning it themselves to sort of probe further and think like oh maybe this isn't okay um and and yeah it makes me wonder sort of to what extent does this have to do with the fact that like it's a judged it's like a judging based sport right where you're sort of thinking about every aspect of like your body the way it looks and like sort of questioning and and pushing it further to like meet certain ideals and Mm -hmm. so then yeah I don't know I just kind of wonder how much that has a role in it as well yeah I don't I'm I've, I've I've had that question raised before and I'm I'm not really sure how much it matters whether a sport is judged or not because like a lot of the issues with um body shaming and gymnastics they've they're framed quite like functionally so uh, you know a gymnast will get yelled at for um you know not doing a skill particularly well and her coach will tell her oh you're struggling because you ate too much or it's because you're looking fat today so it's not like how your body looks in and of itself it's you're not performing well because you are too fat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting in that sense. Um, but yeah, I'm, I don't know. I just, I, I, that's a really hard question. I'm not really sure what the answer is. 
Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, I, you know, again, I'm someone who gymnastics is not my sport. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think that's totally a fair answer. Um, now, now I want to ask you about sort of your thoughts on athlete a, and, you know, as someone who was a former elite gymnast, a historian of the sport, who's also coached it, you know, what do you think that the documentary does well? Um, and also what do you think it could have done better in order to really do justice to the history, the victims, and to really tell the, the, the full story to young girls and parents? Hmm. I, I really like the documentary. I think it's great. Um, I love that it focuses on these these three women who really blew this all open and you know they put themselves out there which was incredibly brave and in doing so they um they got a lot of backlash but they also allowed hundreds more to come forward and um and they showed you know it's not this abuse is not limited to the elite level and so i think you know focusing on on those three women is is really the right thing and I'm also I like that it relays these same general messages that have taken me years to unravel about femininity age and abuse um and you know it shows that it it's it's really systemic and it has been going on for decades so um yeah I think that's awesome I also I mean, it's one kind of small moment in the film, but I really like that Jennifer Say, who has been uh, for quite a long time one of the more vocal kind of critics of gymnastics, um, she calls out the celebration of Carrie Struggs' vault in 1996 where she mm-hmm. lands on one, one leg. And, like, everyone, when you say, oh, she landed on, on one foot, everyone knows what you're talking about. Everyone remembers it. And it was just yeah, like, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, I remember it as well. And, and you know, it was everyone was like, "Wow, this is so heroic and amazing!" Like she did this for her country. And then, but if you take a step back, you're like, "That's that's actually really screwed up." Like she was clearly injured beforehand, and her coach was like, "You do it." Like she's really got no choice in the matter. And and it's celebrated as like this triumph, and it's like that's a huge problem actually um and also i think it's a good example to bring up because although it was um an american athlete and you know bella caroli kind of influencing her to do this it was iconic around the world and it wasn't just american coaches who kind of saw this and said oh you've got to push through to win it's is kind of adopted like almost universally as like this is what you have to do to win and if you're not prepared to do that kind of thing that's why you're not the best so um I think that's a really important moment in the history of gymnastics and why people within the gymnastics community behave the way they do and it happened before that it will happen after but it, that was probably like the most iconic instance instance of that um I think you know the film the documentary it could have probably gone uh gone back more in history and looked at you know the gender of the sport and femininity and age and docility but um i think that's also probably quite a biased comment for me to make because that's that's where i've kind of focused so um but i think that's a, it is really important and i think 
especially the issue of age could have come out a lot more um they, they do talk about it a little bit but i think it's bigger than it's made out to be in the uh documentary because there's this this unquestioned assumption in the sport still that gymnastics is a young sport and you need to start young peak young you're 16 you've got olympics and then you're done and you know it's it's really frustrating because like this there's not really a good justification for that it and it's widely accepted and it's perpetuated in the media and you know the film opens with maggie nichols mum um basically saying that she says you know maggie was uh an international uh, she went to nationals when she was only nine years old like this was it was the, she was the first gymnast to do that and like but that's I mean it's a great achievement for Maggie but also like let's let's not celebrate this that's actually it's that's too young we shouldn't be training that hard and doing that much at that age and it's just contributing to this narrative that that's what's necessary in gymnastics and it's totally not like we're now seeing a lot of gymnasts carry on into their 20s and 30s and they're still like internationally competitive winning medals and stuff so um i i think we really need to get away from this idea that the sport is for children and you know you've got one shot and that's it um i think that's it's it's really problematic um and i think the one of the other really big things that the documentary does is you know there's this driving narrative of maggie nichols being left off the um olympic team because she uh reported the abuse and i think you know there's there's definitely merit in in that idea and some gymnasts in great britain have also talked about this kind of fear of speaking up because administrators and coaches kind of hold the their the career path of these gymnasts in their hands they they can stop them going to the olympics if they want so that you know this this they hold this power over the gymnasts and that's definitely part of the story but also it's a little bit that Maggie Nichols' story in the, the documentary is a little bit speculative. Like, there's not great evidence that that is why she was left off the team. It could well be, but there's just not not great evidence for it. And I also I think the part of the story that's missing is that the the way that the gymnastics teams are selected is not actually that straightforward. So you have five athletes on a team at the moment and in smaller countries you know your top five athletes are on the team and that's it that's done and dusted because you've probably only got five athletes who are healthy enough to compete or just five athletes full stop whereas in America you have so many athletes they can be very tactical about selecting teams and um and you know it you do actually need tactics because although the team is five gymnasts 
not everyone competes in the all around. They don't all do every apparatus. Maybe two or three gymnasts do every apparatus, um, and then two or three gymnasts just do a handful of apparatus, anywhere between one and three. So, you know, if if your country has three um, if your country's like weak on bars but already has three good vaulters, someone who's further down in the rankings but who's great on bars might get an Olympic spot over someone who's higher in the all-round but not really contributing much to the score on bars. So, you know, you have to balance these all-around versus apparatus kind of elements to your team selection. And um, I just think that's that's a really important part of the story that. Uh, is kind of left out. It's not quite as simple as you take your top five athletes and that's that. Um, so, yeah, I, at the same time, though, I do think, you know, it's with the the power that the selection team holds, they are they're thinking beyond which apparatus can each athlete contribute to. They're also thinking who's obedient, who's recovering from injury so they might get you know, having better score in a few months, whose parents are causing trouble for us, you know, like these, mm. all of these aspects do feed into the the process, but it's just kind of presented in the documentary as a little bit more straightforward than that. Um, and that's not really quite accurate. And I guess finally, like the last thing about Athlete A is what we talked about before, like it, it's, it's aiming to focus on what happened in America, but actually we know this we know this is an international story so um that's you know maybe maybe that's the sequel or something but uh yeah and, and it also like i guess just like a little extra a little bit more than what you asked but i um kind of connected with a whole lot of gymnastics scholars from around the world and I'm I'm the only historian but there's a couple of like sociologists some psychologists people from different disciplines and like we're all from totally different countries and continents and there's not that many of us there's maybe like 12 or so and so we all kind of met up to talk about like how our research intersects and what we're learning from different disciplines but also like different countries and like immediately it became clear that like everywhere in the world, these these problems are the same. They're, no matter which country we're in, we're all talking about the same stuff. And I think for a long time, gymnastics has been able to say like, oh, you know, America had this abuse problem, but, you know, they just had a bad system or whatever. It's, it's just there. But it's actually really clear from the research and from what gymnasts are saying now, um, you know, this this is really everywhere. It's not a national problem. It's a it's an international problem. Um, so yeah. Wow, I'm so that was so fantastic. And you know, now I'm thinking like, oh, you, you all need to write an op-ed or or something. <laughs> just I think because I, I, I think I I really like how you're saying that you all come from very different places in the world and also different experiences. And then you also bring all these different like academic skills to the table and that you're still like very quickly able to see how it's really this, this global issue. Um, and I definitely, I mean, it's way easier, of course, to like pin it, the story on the U S and, 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 and Britain to, we'll see what kind of plays out there, but also to pin it on like Nasser and the Carolis, right? Like you want to, 
the, yeah. the media and, e- and even athletes and coaches and, you know, obviously the FIG, right. They only, and the IOC, like they only want to be able to pinpoint it in certain spots because then people are going to start asking even harder questions and parents might be, you know, keeping their children from the sport. And obviously none of that plays out well, you know, when it comes to yeah. dollar sign and NPR. Um, so I would love to see that if you guys don't have enough on yeah. your plate already. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know what? We've tried to do some, like some kind of joint research projects from this um, before all of this stuff came out, actually back in like 2016. And we just really struggled to get the funding and get it off the ground. But I think now like, you know, a bit of a um, perverse blessing from everything, all the abuse that's, stories that are coming out now is that like there's a real justifiable need for this kind of research to to really be better publicized and really make it out to to the public absolutely and and you know before we move on like one other thing that you said um you kind of downplayed it when you were saying like oh i wish they talked more about the docility and the age issues but you said that's kind of my bias and i'm saying like no, you know, these are central issues that are that at are the heart of these power dynamics, right? Like in this mm-hmm. sport that teaches women um, to be docile, right? Whether it's like these yeah. balletic women who should be mothers and really graceful and feminine, who should keep their mouth shut as part of being this like mm-hmm. older, um, graceful woman, or these little girls who are docile and wear pigtails and, you know, smile a lot. I mean, neither right? Neither sort of image portrays um, like female self-advocacy, right? And all mm-hmm. these protectiveness and all these things that we really need 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 parents and coaches and of course, young gymnasts to be sort of developing and encouraging. Um, so I think you're absolutely, absolutely right to, to point that out. Um, there's another, um, I don't know if, you, if you've seen it, I just happened to catch it the other day. There's an, an HBO did a documentary called At the Heart of Gold. Mm. Um, and it, that one's, go ahead. Oh, I haven't seen it. It's, I've got it sitting on my computer, like ready to go, but (laughs) yeah, no, no, no problem. We didn't, I didn't mention it beforehand. That one's really interesting. I think that takes a more sort of long deray view, um, of sort of what's going on. Um, and, and, and really looks like, oh, like this is truly ongoing for a long time and doesn't, Mm -hmm. um, but also dives a little bit more deeper into the Corollis, which really just, I think corroborates and supports the research that you've done. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say like on our behalf, uh, when, when Nathan and I watched it, um, watched both of them, when we first heard about them, one kind of thing that we said about athlete A is that, you know, cause one of the, you know, Maggie Nichols is one of the big focal points and it kind of portrays her college experience as one mm-hmm. that really helped her like rediscover her love of the sport. And it was really healthy. And it's like, well, that might've very well have been the case. And, you know, hopefully it was the case. I would hope that that's where, you know, she really was able to kind of find her love again. Um, as like we've talked about in the other episodes, like NCAA sport is so, so problematic. Um, yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of circulation of coaches from what I understand between like club gyms and like college gyms. Um, but, um, but again, you know, it tells a bit more of like a triumphal story and again, you know, pinpoints the, the abuse on like certain characters and not like, you know, everybody. Yeah. But there is, um, there's a lot of stories about how college gymnastics coaches 
their job is basically to like rehabilitate these broken former elites and these stories existed before athlete a came out and for before the nasa stuff came out just referring to like how burnt out and physically broken down these people these gymnast bodies are and how um college coaches have to really kind of restore the joy to the sport and you know i think i think there's there's a some element of truth to this because um a lot of elite gymnasts they're training 30 hours a week if not more since they're like maybe 11 or 12 and you get to NCAA and you're not allowed to train any more than 20 hours so there are these like imposed kind of limits that are actually really liberating for the gymnasts because they can't they they're not allowed to push themselves in a way that they were made to before and also like the gymnasts um with this hour restriction they do their own training kind of so they get they learn to be a bit more like independent and in control of what they're doing um because they're not always doing it with a coach alongside them so um yeah I think I think it can be like quite a quite a different experience for a lot of former elites well, I'm really glad you brought that up because I clearly didn't know, know that aspect of it. I mean, I, I had heard it in like one or two places, um, but I, you know, I, I never thought about the 20 hours per week world as being particularly liberating. But I mean, that's if that's the case, like that's wonderful. I mean, it's sad, of course, and it, you yeah. know, perverse in, in ways. But um, yeah, no, no, that that's great. Um, so I'd uh, I'd like to turn uh, to your own fandom, um, and, and this is something that we've talked about with a lot of people. Uh, so far and you know how people sort of reconcile to what extent they can reconcile kind of being a fan of the sport that they study and, and the sport that they study in a very critical way um and so like would you at this point would you call yourself a fan of gymnastics um how do you navigate fandom while still being critical yeah um that's a really hard question and it's one that i have grappled with a lot um and I kind of try to tease it out in the preface to my book because you know the the book's not about me but it also kind of the whole my whole framework for gymnastics is very colored by my own experience in it and I think that's kind of quite important to kind of acknowledge as a kind of bias it, it's a limitation but it also opens a certain doors for me and what I can and can't see in my analysis of the sport so um yeah but I think I think my conclusion is probably that I'm I'm not really a fan of gymnastics um and so there's a couple of reasons for this like when I uh retired from the sport you know it wasn't really on my own terms um yeah, I got injured basically like past the point of return and so like I didn't really want to quit the sport and and so I found it quite like difficult um kind of like still following the sport I didn't really want to know about you know how how well other people were doing in it when I couldn't do it myself um so I kind of lost lost interest a little bit um and then through my PhD I kind of came back to it um but not in the sense of like following scores and new trends and stuff more in the sense of um 
you know, coming to it with this kind of critical lens and trying to make sense of the sport itself. Um, because, you know, when, when you're a kid and you're, and you're being asked to do something on the beam that you're like quite scared of, you know, like who on earth would invent this? Like, this is so frustrating. Why would someone invent a balance beam and do all these hard things on it? Like, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to understand, you know, like where, where did this come from? Like, why do people start yeah. doing this? And then mm-hmm. as I got more into my analysis and I was like, oh God, like there's a lot of these things that I didn't realize were not actually that normal. And part of it has also been through like talking to other gymnastics um, scholars and and also actually non-gymnastic scholars who deal with other sports and you just kind of realize like all these things that you kind of thought were like just part of elite sport you're like oh no that's that's actually super weird and like gymnastics probably shouldn't be doing that um and so yeah like and that's just reinforced through through my analysis and I don't really like seeing I don't follow gymnastics because I don't I don't like seeing that you know but at the same time, like I watch the Olympics and I like to see, I do like to see the gymnastics and what, you know, what people are doing. And um, I particularly now I love following on Instagram, some of the like retired gymnasts who are like playing in the gym, but their playing is, it's like elite level gymnastics. They're probably going to come back and start competing internationally. And I, I actually I love watching that kind of stuff because um, that's what I think is like the good side of gymnastics where it is really empowering and you're seeing these women like who just love the sport and they're in control of how they practice it now that they're adults. And um, it's it's like quite feel good watching that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to the next Olympics where, where hopefully we can see like the fruits of some of that that um, that work coming through um yeah and um I just I want to ask sort of what age are like the these like adult gymnasts that are on you know Instagram and and are like hoping to come back I'm just kind of curious yeah well I mean the the uh age limit for adult gymnasts is pretty low it's like 20 so it's kind of normal age for (laughs) other sports (laughs) but um but you know like so the most famous adult gymnast right now is Oksana Chusevitina. She's been to, I think, like seven Olympics. She went to her first one in 1992 as a member of the unified team, which was like the former Soviet Union. And um, she's still going. She's had a kid. She's, I think she must be 40 now. She's like still getting medals on vault. So she's still up there. Um, And a lot of other gymnasts from different parts of the world have kind of watched her and been like, she's a real role model and has made people realize you don't actually have to quit when you're 16 or once you've been to one Olympics, like you can, you can keep going. And if you can find a way to do it on your own terms, you can keep going for even longer. So um, like I've talked to a few of these gymnasts as part of another research project and they, um, you know, they're training like, two hours a day instead of six hours because they they just don't have to do as much they're not really learning new things they're just maintaining their um their strength and their form and 
they're a lot smarter about how they train. So instead of doing like 10 repetitions or something, they'll just do two to, you know, save their body from too much impact. And so, um, and yeah, when you watch them on Instagram and stuff, they're, they're playing, they're like doing stuff that they clearly just find fun. And um, yeah, so I, I just, I really want to see more of that in in the international like competition scene. And I think we're already starting to see some of it, which is, is quite fun. Um, yeah. And so I think like the reason I have these perspectives as well is like, you know, I, I do, I'm not a fan of gymnastics, but I, I love it. Like it was, you know, it was my first love and stuff, but it also like, it, it upsets me that it's, that I can't do it anymore. It upsets me that, you know, I've found so much evidence of these, this abuse and these problematic kind of ways of doing it. And so it's kind of just like a, it's a, dis- it's a disappointment really being a fan of it, um, which is why I'm not a fan of it, except for watching these these gymnasts who who are really getting a lot out of it that's that's not disappointing at all that's that's really really nice yeah and I and I would say too like we've talked about in other episodes how like if only we could sort of get sport back to the point where it's fun and you know who Mm. knows at what point it was ever really fun historically speaking because for so long it has been about winning right. And, and not losing and all of the ideas, um, and sort of power l- levels that come with that. But I, mm-hmm. I yeah, I, I can imagine that would be really empowering. And, you know, you've talked a lot about the importance of the audience and how, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the sort of media perceptions of the sport and how it's developing and like what kinds of athletes the audience responds to. And so, I mean, if the history bears out that that could be a really positive thing that, as you say, as you said, continues to develop if, you know, more and more people are following, um, these women on, on Instagram and, 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 in, and in anticipation of the Olympics or other competitions that they're able to compete at, then that really could be a truly positive thing for the sport. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, um, I know, I understand that you worked for a time as a gymnastics coach and that interestingly, you also took some coaching courses with the FIG. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, in what capacity did you coach the sport? What were your impressions as a coach coming from your intellectual background? Um, and sort of what were your thoughts about the coaching world and certification culture and things like that? Mm. So I coached um, kind of just like a part as a part-time job when I was studying. And then, um, yeah, like it's... It's quite, it's quite like easy to get a job as a coach if you've been a gymnast because because it's so specialized like there's not that many people that can do it so or that can do it without undergoing like significant kind of technical training so um yeah like so it's just kind of a natural progression for a lot of gymnasts but I didn't ever really do it too seriously like I coached competitive club gymnastics but not really like elite stuff um and I don't know like I I I really like the technical you know like uh, angles and body shapes and like how you need to like hit certain kind of um positions to really execute the movement well I, I like that but I really did not like the 
like social kind of conditions around coaching. So like, I feel like when I did the FIG course and all my other gymnastics training, it, it was all about the technical stuff and not about how do you manage a group of 12 seven-year-olds who are like super excited to be in the gym like and (laughs) how do you keep them all together and keep them interested and but not going off the rails and like and then at the same time as that I had a lot of pressure from the like coach administrators uh, the club administrators and some parents as well being like you know, I noticed everyone else in the group is able to do this cartwheel on the high beam, but my kid can only do it on the low beam. Like you need to get them to do it. And I'm kind of mm. like, yeah, but your, your kid is scared. Like they, they often fall off the low beam. I don't want to put them on the high beam if if they're always falling in the easier circumstance, you know. So I found it really difficult to navigate that pressure and trying to like push the kids I was always kind of reluctant to do that um and I felt like that made me not a great coach so I stopped I stopped coaching I don't really do that anymore um and I guess now like having learned so much about the culture and the abuse and the expectations of coaching I kind of view that differently because like I kind of recognize it as I guess I was trying to be like protective of the athletes and I think there there are ways of pushing your athletes without you know straying into kind of dangerous territory but I didn't really feel like I knew how to do that and that was never part of any of the training I received um so I don't I just still don't really know how other coaches are doing it to be honest because I've I've never really seen seen it taught (laughs) yeah no sorry I was I was laughing earlier because when I when I first started coaching it was like a summer league team where it was like the season was two or three months long and I remember I was just remembering the very first summer I was put in charge or like co-coached like the the youngest kids and it was like these four to six year olds and there were like 30 of them and being like what the hell am I doing (laughs) like how do I keep these kids from drowning I like I had no idea and you know my voice was hoarse all the time because we were at like an outdoor pool and it was like the pool was open so there were families and kids playing and so it was just you know, really hard for to, to get them to hear me, but you know, like in, and I certainly had no, I had no training. And in, then when I did training later on too, and it was like more of like a formal club coach, you know, there too, it would, there was never any training on like, this is how, mm-hmm. this is how you work with a bunch of kids. This is how you get them to respect you, but also earn their trust and mm-hmm. do it in a healthy way that, yeah, that certainly was never, was never it. And yeah, I mean, I was fortunate and then I worked with one or two coaches really early on who really emphasized like the fun aspect of it. Um, and so, but I, I could see, you know, if like you never really got that as an athlete yourself and then you don't see other more senior coaches doing it with their athletes and it's not in the training and it's not part of the culture, then that's really hard to, to implement on yeah, your own. Absolutely. And also like, as an athlete, I I kind of found the repetition kind of fun. Like I didn't need any 
kind of games and competitions to like make it interesting whereas like as a coach you know how do you say to a kid do please do 10 beam routines and they're just like that is so boring like you have to kind of make it into a game and I was like I this would have been fun for me so I'm not really sure how to appeal to you like yeah. I was the same way. I was the same way. We we would we would play like water polo for fun, and I'd be like, I don't want to do this. I just want to swim. <laughs> oh yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. Um. So I I understand that you also um, worked uh, with others on sharing your research on the issues related to the rising age of gymnasts. Um. I think a lot of people would be really interested to hear about like in what capacity did you do this work and uh. What did you find in this research and sort of who did you present it to and what was the reception? Mm. So um, part of this research was the group I mentioned earlier of like different scholars from different disciplines and parts of the world. And we tried to uh, do this project together where we interviewed gymnasts from like everywhere in the world. And the requirement was I I think that they were like over 20 um, and competing internationally. And we just kind of asked them about their experiences uh, quite broadly. But I think we got a lot of answers about like how they work with their coach and how that has changed since they were um, training as like a 14 year old. And, you know, what, how they have dealt with like puberty and uh, changing bodies and, um, and also stuff about, you know, how they're situated in their national governing body. Like, are they, do they get help with housing? Are they paid? Do they have to find work? Like, this, all this kind of stuff. And we got heaps of, like, concerning responses um, that are pretty universal about, um, yeah, a, a lot about the authoritarian nature of coaching and how at some point like after puberty the gymnast just like won't stand for it anymore and hit and pushed back and uh it was really hard for a lot of coaches to deal with that and and change but the coaches that could change and start to negotiate more with their gymnasts like how is your body feeling maybe we should do only five reps instead of 10 today the ones who could do that these gymnasts their careers just they got so much better and they could go for so much longer and so we kind of realized like hey if countries that have like not huge gymnastics populations if they can employ these kind of practices then they they could hold on to their gymnasts and really you know not not run out of gymnasts to fill teams mm -hmm. and stuff um uh so we we came up with we identified all these trends and kind of came up with recommendations of you know things not to do things that you should definitely be encouraging and we can provide you to, with training on how to do this because we've learned from all all these situations where it's worked um and so we wrote a few like journal articles and we all had uh at some level an existing relationship with the national governing body for whichever country we were in um and so you know involved in this is um dr Rosalind kerr from new zealand um i was living in australia at the time so i had links with the australian gymnastics federation uh 
Dr. Natalie Barker-Rukti, she's in Sweden, and uh, Dr. Astrid Schubring, who is also in Sweden, and Dr. Miriam Nunamura from Brazil. And so we have these journal articles publishing our findings. We have these uh, reports that we produced for um, kind of like research, like in response to research funding, but they were quite simple and easy to read, like not very, not like highly academic kind of interpretations and theories and stuff. It's designed to be very easy to consume. Um, so we had all of this kind of stuff. We were presenting at conferences and we reached out to the federations and the national governing bodies in each of our countries saying, you know, hey, here's this research. Like, we would love to share it with you. I had people at conferences saying like, oh, my gosh, you need to tell this to the, you know, the national body. They will be so interested. And like the thing is we reached out and no one would, no one would respond. They were just like not at all interested um and you know we, we also all had different contacts with the fig and still they they were not really interested like they added our articles to their like database of research on gymnastics but it hasn't changed yeah it hasn't changed their their coaching courses they have the fig runs uh, regular seminars and um kind of like not coaching courses but additional kind of just upskilling training seminars it's not made it into any of those uh we have been present at at fig competitions and we've said like we are more than happy to give a quick workshop like after the event um to you know help the gymnastics community and they're they're just not interested we held one conference um in sweden between where where we all gathered and a a few more uh gymnastics scholars from different countries and disciplines they also joined us there's that was where there was maybe 12 of us and it was only the scandinavian uh gymnastics federations that sent any representatives and uh looking back now i think possibly this is because in sweden they had very recently at the time it was two years earlier they oh four years earlier sorry they had um had their own allegations of abuse and a full investigation into the the coaching culture so you know they had a a really good reason to be there um and and it was very publicly uh knowing that that these problems existed it was all all through the media so you know it was a good look for them to be there i'm not sure if they have implemented any new practices or recommendations as a result but at you know be, just turning up is the best result we've had so far so yeah wow. <laughs> yeah I mean for you all to like really go so many extra miles right like if if they had reached out to you to do the research and then they had just ignored it that would be one thing but the fact that you guys like repeat y'all repeatedly tried to get in touch with these officials and really share your research is just is is obviously super frustrating i mean on a selfish note i would love to read these pieces especially <laughs> if they're not you know very like scientific or medical but i mean and obviously you know that's also part of like the historical story about this and i don't when did you all do the research and and try to present it so um it was probably between 2014 and 2016 is where we did the bulk of that yeah Mm. 
So yeah, so then that becomes part of the story. Yeah. You know, part of this history about like to what extent is the sport like locally, nationally, internationally, like, you know, adapting to the research and the studies that are being done and like listening to athletes, right? Because it seems like a lot of your work was based in in athletes' voices. Um Yeah. Yeah, it entirely was. And yeah. And also like the FIG has now set up um, like a safe, they call it a safeguarding unit where you can report uh, problematic co- uh, coaching and like officials and stuff. And a lot of national governing bodies, uh, including the United States American Gymnastics Federation, uh, United States Association of Gymnastics, um, they that they have these kind of integrity units as well um, as a result of the NASA stuff. But you know, these allegations are still coming out. It doesn't look like any of these initiatives are really working. And I think it's, you know, it's really complicated, but it's these people in power are the same people enforcing integrity. That's that's part of the problem. Um, yeah, we just, we need to be a bit stricter about these, what is okay in the sport and who's who's really enforcing it, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one thing that I wanted to ask is that, um, so in your work, you talk about the extent, you talk a little bit about how gymnastics is like a, is a feminist sport. Um, and, and I would love to hear you talk more about that since most of this conversation has sort of been about the oppressive structures and how, you know, female gymnastics, gymnasts are not encouraged to speak up and, and that sort of thing. Um, so in what way do you sort of envision it to be something for women to be able to sort of have a positive body image and those sorts of things? Yeah, so um, this is a question that I started kind of, I didn't really think about it until quite late in my research when I kind of had a more like a uh, more holistic picture of everything that's happening in women's gymnastics. And I think it starts with uh, kind of we how we started this conversation about gymnastics is create women's genetics is created as this space for women where they coach and they govern and they compete and they don't sacrifice any femininity in doing so and so it's like quite empowering as it you know it leads the way in showing women can do sport and it's fine it's like it's not a problem um so it, the sport starts in this really feminist place um and you know although now we'd be like well that's limiting saying that you have to behave in the this this restricted way at the time um you know it was it's what it was just what was necessary whereas now especially with all this abuse and stuff you know we're like how can it how can it claim to be feminist like this is so oppressive and you know it's children being asked to do stuff by these like big male coaches like it's there's just so many power dynamics at play but those are all like systemic kind of structural things and when you kind of take it away and just think about think about the gymnasts and their experience. Um, I think it's quite clear that like the physical experience of gymnastics is incredibly empowering and liberating. Um, and you see it in a lot of, it's described in a lot of autobiographies and actually in the opening scenes of Athlete A, uh, Maggie Nichols, tries to articulate the feeling of gymnastics and she and I think this is really where the feminist interpretation of the sport comes in because she says no I just love gymnastics I love the drive that it gives me it teaches you to be strong to be independent 
being able to fly through the air and do the things that we do it's just so thrilling and you just get this adrenaline rush you can't even explain it and um I just think it's such a great quote because I just feel exactly the same like it's it is really difficult to explain it because it's it's about feeling it's not about uh, words um but the way I've tried to describe it in my work is that although the methods for teaching this might be or can be quite problematic the the lesson that is being taught is how to have complete control over your body and what it does so although there's these external pressures about you know what it should look like and sometimes coaches are making gymnasts train through injury and stuff on the other hand you have these women who are so strong that they can kind of right any kind of wrong in terms of if they're a tiny bit off balance that you would never even know because they can just do these most minuscule adjustments to restore equilibrium they have absolute control over where they go in in space like they are free from gravity and can make their body like literally fly through the air on any apparatus it's just like it's such a great feeling but also it's it's a really difficult skill to learn it takes years of conditioning um, and practice to, to get that sense of where you are in time and space and I think that is not an experience that has been available to women um very often and even now like you know women have a lot more power in society than they ever did um but still this total control over everything your body does and where it goes that's still quite limited to a sport where you're doing really complex things and you're doing it with ease um that's actually really amazing and so yeah, we, I just think when you think about how the gymnasts are feeling about this and you rem- remove the external pressures from coaches and sports like systems and stuff, the heart of what they're doing is just all about their own control over themselves and this flight. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really cool. That's, that's just fantastic. And, you know, it, it, I think... Yeah, and I think using that as using those ideas as sort of a, a driving force to figure out like how can we create the conditions for that to be the the center of the sport, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and obviously, like you said, with this work that you've done with these research all researchers all over the world, it seems like that is probably one of the aims of your work, right? Is to sort of yeah to figure out based on athletes' feedback, like how can we develop this this sort of nurturing and also empowering environment where they can do these incredible things with their bodies yeah yeah exactly yeah so final question um i know we've taken up so much of your time (laughs) um i i wanted to ask you know as you know as someone who does interviews right that like an interview is shaped by the questions that are asked so Mm -hmm. i wanted to see if there was anything about um, this history that you this this history that you very beautifully woven for us that I didn't ask about that you think is important for people to know, um, I think I don't know. I think you've you've asked really good questions that have able enabled me to kind of talk about what I think the important 
kind of points at. Um, I I really would reiterate the ideas about age. Um, I really just think this this assumption that you have to be young and specialize early it's just so deeply ingrained in the public's perception of the sport as well as gymnasts and coaches own perception of the sport um it's just it's going unquestioned and it's i really don't think it's true actually um and you know the the sport has had age limits for a long time it was 14 in the 70s and up to 15 in the 80s and then finally it went to 16 in the 1990s and there have been questions about uh, you know whether it should even go further and one of the most vocal opponents to increasing the age just to 16 in in the 90s it was actually Bella Caroli and I think looking back now it's like well he was one of the fiercest advocates for working with children and because of their docility and compliance um and i think actually you know we're seeing this this great number of gymnasts who are excelling in their 20s and sometimes their 30s and they're excelling in circumstances in which they have a lot more control over what they're doing and they can make informed decisions about whether the you know the risks of their training and the harms of it are worth the reward that i think there's a very strong case for increasing the age limit again um and there's not a very good case i I don't know what the case is at all actually for keeping it at 16 i think it's a huge part of the problem this age difference so why not why not revisit it and try and get rid of it absolutely well georgia thank you so so very much like i said we with this interview has gone way longer than i thought it would <laughs> and i i truly i mean it, it's honestly because this was just such a fascinating conversation and i just wanted to kind of get every piece of information about your research out of you because it is <laughs> such it's such important work. Um, and you're also doing like, you're doing such huge work in terms of it's, it's like a history, like a global history of gymnastics, right? It's not just like history yeah. gymnastics in, in one country or one moment. You're trying to draw this, this huge sort of narrative. Um, so thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And it's, it's been so great to have the opportunity to talk about it so much. It's probably why this this talk has gone over so i'm sorry for that it's yeah it's it's been great to talk about it so thank you thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport if you're enjoying the show please feel free to like share and subscribe give us a follow on twitter or instagram at end of sport pod or shoot us an email at the end of sport at gmail.com thanks for listening